We all want to believe that we're in control of our fate and that if we take, you know, certain steps, we lead a good, healthy life and are kind to others, we're going to kind of get a good response in return. And that's not always the way it works out. And that's a really difficult thing. So that loss of control is a really, really challenging part of going through a traumatic experience. So one of the things we can do to help people is by giving them some control back by sharing information with them. everybody, I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Punk Rock HR. Today's guest is Katherine Manning. She's a lawyer and the author of The Empathetic Workplace, Five Steps to a Compassionate, Calm, and Confident Response to Trauma on the Job. For 15 years, Katherine advised the Justice Department on victims' issues. That means she was involved in some of the most challenging cases that you've heard of, like the victims related to Bernie Madoff, the Boston Marathon bombing, the South Carolina AME church shooting, and even the case against U.S. Olympics gymnast team doctor Larry Nassar. Now, Catherine uses her expertise to advise governments, educational institutions, and corporations on how to prepare for and respond to trauma. That could be sexual harassment, assault, or even COVID. If you work in human resources or you're a leader and you wonder how you can be there for your employees or your entire workforce, sit tight and enjoy my conversation with Catherine Manning. Hey, Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Well, I'm super thrilled to have you here. You've got a new book coming out, a lot of good stuff in your life happening. We're going to talk about all of that, but I wanted to invite you for just a minute or so to tell people who you are and what you're all about. Absolutely. So my name is Catherine Manning. My book that's coming out is called The Empathetic Workplace. I am an attorney and I've worked with victims and others in trauma for more than 25 years as a counselor, as an advocate, and as a lawyer. I spent 15 years at the Justice department where I was a senior attorney advisor on victim rights, which meant that I got to help the department craft its policy around how it works with victims and also advise it on how to work with victims in cases like Bernie Madoff and the Boston Marathon bombing and the Pulse nightclub shooting. Through all of that work with victims of diverse types of crime, I started to realize that when we are going through a crisis of whatever type, there are certain things that we need. And that's really what I tried to distill in the book. It's just very practical advice on how to support people in trauma. Well, I'm excited to talk about your new book because it's so incredibly helpful, especially right now with the world being what it is. But before we get started, people are drawn to specific types of work for a reason. And your career is so interesting because you've got a background in law, you've got a background in victim advocacy. So why do you do what you do? You know, like many people who do victim work, I have my own history of victimology. So I came from a family there where there was domestic violence. Fortunately, my mother had the resources and the wherewithal to be able to leave an abusive relationship 
relationship and I didn't grow up in an abusive household, but that early experience really was formative for me. And so when I got to college, one of the first things I did was start volunteering on the local domestic violence hotline. And through that work, I began to see more clearly the challenges that victims face in the legal system. And that's what drove me to law school. Well, there are two types of people, I think, that emerge from trauma. And you can tell me if I'm wrong, people who are drawn to it to kind of remedy the situation and those who are triggered by it, I would assume. But that's binary thinking. And that may be wrong. Is that accurate? Does that describe it? Or is that too simple? You know, I think we all probably vacillate between the two sometimes. And there are things that for people who have a history of trauma, which honestly is most of us these days, there are things that can set you off. And sometimes it's just a surprise. You don't understand why. I think the key is just to understand that it's normal and just get better at kind of navigating that and recognizing when it happens. But also, I have just been completely blown away in my work with victims by the incredible work that they are doing out in the world. I mean, in all different areas, incredible artwork that people are doing, creating support organizations, advocating for changes in the law, and as well as showing up for each other and for others in their lives who are going through traumatic situations. So it's been really one of the great blessings of my life is being able to work with people who have a background in trauma. Well, let's talk a little bit about this word trauma because it's one of those words that has multiple meanings. Everybody defines it differently. How do you define it? I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not going to give you the psychological definition of trauma. What I do is just a very practical definition of trauma. I think of trauma as a psychological injury that affects performance. So it could be that different people go through the exact same event, and some people are experiencing a trauma that affects their performance, and some people really aren't. So it's very individualized. And that's the goal in my work is to help people respond to each person where they are. Your new book really focuses on trauma in the workplace. So let's talk about trauma and how it shows up at work. Can you give me some examples? Trauma these days seems to be kind of the stew that we've been sitting in with the coronavirus and the responses to institutional racism, the political upheaval that we've seen. I mean, just a few weeks ago with uh, attack on the U.S. Capitol. I think we're all seeing trauma writ large in our society, but we also are experiencing trauma on a very personal personal basis. More people than ever before are experiencing sickness and illness in their homes with coronavirus and other kinds of effects due to the coronavirus. We're seeing an increase in domestic violence. And in addition, a lot of people are struggling to juggle responsibilities like they've never had to before. They've got kids at home and they're trying to manage homeschooling and kids are going through trauma as well and we're trying to support them through it. So it's definitely affecting all of us and we've seen just skyrocketing rates of anxiety, depression, Unfortunately, suicide rates are up right now. So it is affecting us at work all the time. And how does it affect us at work? It affects our productivity. You know, we're not able to produce at the same level that we would be normally. It affects our communication skills. People are having trouble communicating. They're having trouble with their tempers. You know, people don't have the patience that they normally would. It affects our absenteeism. And in a lot of ways, if we don't respond well to trauma, it can really affect our relationships with each other at work and our trust of the organization. Well, nobody responds well to anything at work. I mean, that's just the sad state of affairs in the world of work these days. Work is broken for a lot of reasons. And 
I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your book and what it has to offer in terms of solutions for people dealing with trauma at work. Because Catherine, it's not like we haven't had trauma before. And yet the time is now to really take a look at this and to institute some solutions. I totally agree. So one of the things I think is helpful to understand just as background is how trauma affects the brain, because it really influences our actions and the actions of the person in trauma. So just a very quick overview, when we are in some situation that our brains perceive as dangerous in some way. So that can be really anything, you know, our brains are constantly scanning to try to keep us safe. So if our brains, our kind of lizard brains, determine that we are in a dangerous situation, a few things happen. First, we get a flood of adrenaline. And that can be because our brains are thinking we might have to run or we might have to fight somebody off, something like that. So we get a flood of adrenaline into our muscles and our heart rate increases. And then the parts of our brain that are less helpful to doing something like fighting off an attacker get muted. And most relevantly, the part of our brain associated with rational decision making, because our brains are, you know, logically thinking, you don't need to read a spreadsheet right now, you need to run. <laughs> and so that is very, very helpful, obviously, if you are about to be attacked by a bear, but less helpful if you're in a meeting at work, and suddenly you feel triggered, as we talked about earlier. So that's the first thing to understand is when somebody is ex undergoing a a traumatic experience, they can have that happening in their brain. And then the second thing to understand is that we are all built to be empathetic human beings. It is hardwired into us that we feel a little bit of the feelings of those we're interacting with. So if I see somebody laughing really hard, I'm probably going to start to laugh or at least smile, even if I have no idea what they're laughing about. <laughs> Because feelings are contagious. You know, we, we feel what each other is feeling. And that's great if it's laughter. And if it's trauma, it can be problematic. Because what happens to us, even if we've been having a great day, suddenly we catch a little bit of that trauma response. And we get a little bit jittery, maybe, you know, we start to wiggle around in our seats, and we start to put up kind of protective mechanisms. And those can be anything from crossing our arms. Sometimes you'll see people actually physically turn away from the person in trauma. They're just trying to guard themselves from that reaction. And they don't necessarily understand why, but you'll see if you observe people, you'll see them start to put up these kind of protective mechanisms. Those are normal empathetic responses. It means you're a, an empathetic human, but it's just not super helpful in that moment. And so in the book, what I do is give you the five steps to a more appropriate response to trauma. And I tried to just make it very, very practical, giving you actual words that you could use. And I also gave you an acronym because I know that our brains are not operating at full capacity in that moment. So I want to make it as easy on you as possible. So the acronym is LASER and the five steps are listen, acknowledge, share, empower, and return. Catherine, let's break down laser because I think every individual listening to this, whether they're an HR manager or an entrepreneur or a leader of teams, will want to know what is laser and how can I use it tomorrow because my workforce is suffering. So take us through that. Absolutely. So step one, listen. The book has a lot of advice on active listening, which means staying present for the person as they share their story. And there are a few things we can do to show people that we are listening to them. Just a couple of tips from the book. One is asking questions. 
that demonstrates to people that we care about what they're saying. We want them to keep going. My advice is to ask open-ended questions, which means questions that don't readily lead to a yes or no answer. Who, what, where, when. Generally, I advise staying away from the why questions because why can sometimes come across as blaming. Even if we don't intend it as blaming, particularly for somebody who is going through a traumatic situation, they tend to be blaming themselves already. So they're already kind of attuned to listen for that. So in general, it's better to avoid the why questions, but who, what, where, when are all great because they show that we want to hear more. Some other great tips, obviously maintaining eye contact and an open body posture shows that we are able to hear this. We want to hear what this person is talking about. One of the things to be aware of is because we may be experiencing that surge of adrenaline, we have a tendency to kind of close up and we might want to cross our arms or something like that. So a good idea to do when you are hearing a story that might be a little uncomfortable is to just take a few deep breaths as you're listening and consciously lower your shoulders or unclench your jaw, whatever it is that you kind of do naturally when tension is entering your body, just purposely counterbalance that. And that has a couple of benefits. One is it calms you down. But then the other thing that's fantastic about it is it also calms down the other person who's talking because they start to kind of mirror your stance. They might, without even realizing it, take a deep breath and lower their shoulders as well. So it can really help the conversation be more productive and a little bit calmer and on a more even keel. So that's step one, that's listen. And there's a lot more advice in the book, particularly around how to control your own response, which I think is really important. Hey everybody, we're living in an era of uncertainty, but work was never designed to make us feel secure. Systems, processes, and programs were built for bosses, not employees. In my new book, Betting on You, How to Put Yourself First and Finally Take Control of Your Career, I'm going to teach you how to live a better life, enjoy work, and even be your own HR department, a skill that's needed whether we're in a pandemic or not, to advocate for yourself, avoid burnout, and form better personal and professional relationships. Betting on You is available wherever books are sold and audiobooks are streamed. The best place to buy the book is laurierudiman.com forward slash books. That's laurierudiman.com forward slash books by betting on you today. I'm intrigued because most people are terrible listeners in the good moments. And so you've given us some helpful advice for the difficult, the challenging moments. What's step two? This is the step where things tend to go off the rails, I will say. <laughs> Um, if we don't do it correctly. So there is a tendency, you know, you've done such a good job, you've listened, you've allowed the person to share their story, and then you just want to jump right to solutions. You want to just, you know, you've been waiting just almost like sitting on your hands. Oh my God, oh my God, I have the perfect book for you. I have the perfect contact for you. I just really want to share this story about when something similar happened to my sister and what she did. All of that is great and may be really helpful in the future. But at this point in the conversation, when the person has just finished talking, you have to do something first and that's acknowledge the story that they shared with you. One of my favorite quotes is from Theodore Roosevelt and he said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And in particular, for somebody going through 
through trauma, because they're having that brain response, it's very, very difficult for them to listen, to even hear what you're saying until they know that they are safe with you. And one way that we demonstrate that they are safe with us is by being respectful of the story that they've just shared. And so acknowledgement, it doesn't have to be any compl- anything complicated and it really can just take a second or two. It's literally just, thanks for sharing that with me. Thanks for sharing that or that sounds really hard or scary or frustrating or whatever it is. Just a very brief acknowledgement and then you can move on to step three. Well, tell us about step three, because we're already almost halfway through this traumatic experience of responding to it. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to blow it so badly. But I'm learning. I'm learning. So give me step three. So I should say first that if you are just supporting a friend or a family member or a neighbor, you might only need steps one and two. So listen and acknowledge. If you can do those, that's fantastic. But if you're in a workplace, if you're an HR manager, some a manager, somebody's coming to you for help, that's when you're going to need these last three steps. And step three is share. And it means share information with the person. One of the things that I learned over my years working with victims is that one of the hardest parts of being a victim is the loss of control. You know, you are just driving home from work and you get hit by a drunk driver. And then suddenly you're in the hospital for six weeks and you didn't have any control over that. You didn't do anything wrong. And that's a really hard thing to wrap your mind around. We all want to believe that we're in control of our fate and that if we take, you know, certain steps, we lead a good, healthy life, you know, and are kind to others, we're going to get a good response in return. And that's not always the way it works out. And that's a really difficult thing. So that loss of control is a really, really challenging part of going through a traumatic experience. So one of the things we can do to help people is by giving them some control back by sharing information with them. So what kinds of information can we share? It varies depending on the situation. So if you have information about the traumatic experience itself, that is a fantastic thing to share. So for instance, it's an identity theft case and there has been a huge data breach sharing with everybody. This is what information was taken. This is what time the intrusion happened. These are the next steps involved, right? So all of that, just sharing any information that you have about the crisis and is helpful. If you don't have anything, because you might not, this person coming to you might be the first time you've heard anything about it. The other thing that you can share is process information. Here's what happens next. Here's the person you need to talk to. This is how these complaints are handled in our organization. And it's one of those things that you might think, well, that should be very obvious. It's on the website or whatever. But for the person in trauma, it is actually incredibly comforting to know that there's a process in place. And so it's helpful to share that information. And and just a quick word about how to share information, because remember that person may be experiencing a trauma response. It's a little hard for them to process information. It's a good idea to repeat yourself. When I'm talking with somebody in trauma, I'll share the same information three times in different ways, and then also follow up in writing, you know, follow it up with an email. One of the things about sharing is that it's almost compulsory because we're empathetic individuals, to see someone in pain, to see someone who has diminished performance and say, I know how you're feeling and share your own experiences. Talk to me about that because I'll tell you, when I you know, had a cat pass away even, I almost didn't want to put it out there on the internet because I didn't want to hear other stories of people who lost their animals. So talk to me a little bit about the downside of sharing and some of the mistakes we might make. 
Oh, that's such a great question. Thank you, Lori. Yeah, I know there is a real instinct to do that. And the reason we want to do that is because we want to build a connection. And it's such a great impulse. You know, I think it's a wonderful thing that people want to do that. But just be mindful of a few things. One is you don't want to pull the focus onto yourself. So <laughs> if somebody says to you, I just experienced this loss, my cat died, and you launch into your own story of the cat dying, then suddenly they're trying to comfort you and you're not showing up for them. So that's one of the downsides of it. The other one I think is particularly important for HR folks to be mindful of, which is that sometimes the connection it creates is a false one. So you can create an impression in somebody that you fully understand their experience when you really don't. So just a very, this is kind of an easy hypothetical example. If somebody says to you, oh, I just bought a house, boy, what an ordeal that was. And you say, oh my gosh, yes, I remember when I bought a house. They now think, oh, you understand what I went through, but they bought a house in a very different environment than you did. Maybe they went through, you know, 17, you know, failed offers. They, you know, it, it took them a year and a half to buy this house and they had to write letters and do all this, you know, rigor world to do it. You bought your house 10 years ago and it was nothing like that. That person now thinks that you understand um, their perspective when you really don't. So the thing that's important is to remember your goal there is to understand their perspective. Our goal is to support them and to understand where they're coming from. And I think especially important for HR folks is to make sure that we are not also creating an impression that we are somebody's advocate when we're not. So if somebody comes to you and says that they're experiencing harassment and you say, boy, I have a little experience with that myself, they're going to think, oh, thank goodness, she understands and she is going to fight for me. And that's not your role. I think there's this other thing that happens when you're a leader or in human resources where you do feel like you have seen it all. You have experience, you have knowledge, and you can relate. And I love your reminder to kind of check yourself and that you don't know what someone is experiencing. Even if they tell you, you still don't know what they're experiencing and it's not your job to necessarily relate and form that bond. I love that. That's so very interesting. Tell us about your fourth step. The fourth step is empower. And I really think of this step as being as important for us as listeners as for the person who's going through the traumatic experience. And that's because there are many, I'm sure, in your listening audience who have a similar perspective to me, which is when somebody is in pain, I just want to fix it. <laughs> I just want to make it better. You know, when I was doing domestic violence work, I honestly, it was a really good thing that I lived in a tiny apartment because I would have just had a house full of women and children. <laughs> I, I just get want, that. Yeah. yeah I you just yeah. really want to help people. I think what's important to remember is that we need to recognize that each person's journey is their own. It's their own path to walk. We can't walk it for them. And so what we want to do is empower them for their journey. We want to give them the tools for their own path that they're walking. But wait, I don't mean to interrupt, but isn't that a fine line between empowering someone and fixing it for them? Because if they could be empowered, the assumption might go, they might have done it already. It's a great 
question. So what we do is we give them some resources to carry with them along the way. And then we accept that they might use those or not, and it's not up to us. So some resources that everybody should know. If you are an HR, if you're a manager, if you work with people at all, there are some resources you should know about. Number one, security options. If you don't know right now listening what you would do if somebody came to you in an hour and said, my ex-husband is standing outside the building and he's been threatening me lately and I'm not sure what to do. If you don't know right now who you would call, go look that up and put it in your phone right now. Make sure that you know the security options in your building, in your organization. Obviously, a lot of us are working from home right now, but those security options are still there. They can help you with safety planning and um, also with the types of incursions that can happen even in a remote environment. So make sure you're aware of security options. Know all of the flexible work options. If somebody needs to take a leave of absence, are they able to do that? So make sure you're aware of all those options that are available at your work, as well as things like EAP and mental health resources. And then finally, be aware of community resources. There are just some amazing community resources out there that everybody should know about. Everyone should know the suicide hotline number. Everybody should know about where to refer somebody for issues of addiction, where to report child abuse. All of those resources I actually have on my website, which is blackbird-dc.com, a little one pager that you can download with just all of those types of resources that you should have handy just in case you need them because you never know. And again, the goal here is you provide the resources to the person and then you let them take the next steps on their own. It doesn't work if we say, you know what, I'm going to call EAP on your behalf and I'm going to follow up with them and make sure that you call them because what that does is, first of all, it makes them feel this pressure to please you, which you don't want. You don't want them to feel like I have to call because otherwise, you know, Lori's going to be really upset with me. You want them to call because it's what they actually need. And two, you're taking away from them their autonomy. You know, we talked about earlier, one of the hardest things about being a victim is the loss of control. We want to give them the control. And honestly, it won't work as well. If they aren't taking the steps that are real for them and what they need and what they're ready for, it won't be sustainable. Well, take us through the final step of your laser model, because I'm there. Like, I feel like a new woman having listened to this. What's the final step? The final step is return. And I really think of this in two manners. So return means literally return to the person in trauma. So you end the conversation well on a good note, you've given them some resources, some information, and then they leave. Calendar, checking in with them later. And it can be a week later, it can be a month later, just check in, how you doing? How's everything going with your mom or whatever it is? Were you able to reach EAP? Do you need any other resources? So check in with them later and then return is also a return to ourselves because hearing these stories is really hard and we have to recognize that it affects us as well. We carry it around with us unless we can take some time to process it and guard against compassion fatigue. So there's a discussion in the book about some self-care steps that we should be taking and maintaining all the time so that we're ready because these things can come out of nowhere, as you and your audience well know. Well, I do want to touch upon the self-care aspect of your book, because one of the phenomenal things that's happening in the HR community and not in a positive way is that burnout is at a record rate. And if we can't address burnout in our own community, how do we do it for our workers? How do we do it for the workforce? So talk to me a little bit about self-care and burnout, because we are putting ourselves out there for everyone else at the expense of our own individual well-being. Oh, I'm right there with you, my friend. 
I've experienced it myself. It's really, really hard. So I can't tell you that I've got the kind of perfect answer to this, but I'm just going to tell you what works for me. And this is what I talk about in the book. So number one is make it a routine. So it should be your self-care, whatever that is, should be as much a part of your routine as brushing your teeth. For me, I do five minutes of stretching and five minutes of meditation every day after I take a shower. And it is just the promise that I make to myself that no matter what, I'm going to give myself that 10 minutes of reset every morning. I will tell you that the busier I get, the more I want to drop that. And one of the things we have to recognize is that is the first sign that we need to double down on it. There's this great Buddhist saying that you should meditate for 30 minutes a day unless you're too busy, and then you should meditate for an hour. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that speaks to me. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah. So whatever it is, you know, uh, some people meditation is not the right thing. If for you, it's playing the piano for 20 minutes after dinner or walking your dog every morning or having a a regular check-in with your spouse or with a friend. All of those are great things. Just my only advice is to do as much as you can to make it a regular part of your routine. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, the other thing that it's important that we do is talk about the hard stuff. Just get into a habit of recognizing that these things are things that we have to talk about. One of the things I have really admired, there's a national sexual assault organization called RAIN, R-A-I-N-N. They're hotline counselors have a requirement that before they go off shift, they have to go talk to a coworker and tell them all the most horrible things they heard that day. It is just built into their culture that they know we have to talk about this stuff. We can't just keep it in ourselves. Obviously, we have confidentiality concerns, so we can't always go, you know, we can't unload on our spouses or our friends about these issues. Can you talk to a a coworker about it? Is that something that you can talk about within your team at work? Can you write in your journal about it? Can you talk to your therapist? And honestly, some of these hotlines that people should know about, like a domestic violence hotline or a suicide hotline, those are available to us as helpers as well. So if you've had a coworker who's gone through a a sexual assault or something that's really heavy and hard to deal with, reach out to those hotlines because they can help you be better support for that person in your office, but also can help you manage some of that response for yourself as well. And then my third step, for guarding against compassion fatigue is know your own warning signs, know your red flags. So those can be things like wanting to drop your self-care routine. That for me is always a good sign that I'm experiencing a little too much stress. Another thing for me is when something that normally is fun starts to feel like a burden. So for me in the before COVID times, I used to love throwing dinner parties. I love cooking for my friends. I love having them over and talking over a meal together. If I have a dinner party coming up and I just think, oh, gosh, what a pain this is. I can't believe I have to clean the house and I have to figure out what to cook. That to me is a sign that I'm running too low. And then also, if you experience any sort of challenges around addiction, this is the time when they will start to kind of tap you on the shoulder. So be aware of suddenly you're getting very aware of alcohol in the environment or you're thinking a little too much about your eating habits or something like that. Just be aware that those are also signs that you're running a little bit too low and you need to double down on that self 
self-care. All really good tips, advice, and wisdom. Thank you so much for sharing your story today, giving us such good information about how to really up our game and be compassionate and empathetic, but also effective as leaders. Really helpful. If people want to learn more about you and find the book, tell us a little bit more about where they can go. So the book comes out on February 16th, but you can order it now. If you go to my author website, which is katherinemanning.com, you can get a copy of the introduction right now and start to read. You can also find me on Facebook and on Instagram at Empathetic Workplace. And I'm also on LinkedIn as well and love to connect with people. Catherine, thanks for spending part of your day with us. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved our talk. Hey, everybody, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Catherine Manning. For more information, resources and links in the show notes, head on over to punkrockhr.com. Now that's all for today. And I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR.